Chapter Fourteen, Book Three of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood, Book Three, Chapter Fourteen. Dick Turpin. Many a fine fellow with a genius extensive enough to have effected universal reformation has been doomed to perish by the halter. But does not such a man's renown extend through centuries and tens of centuries, while many a prince would be overlooked in history were it not the historian's interest to increase the number of his pages? Nay, when the traveller sees a gibbet, does he not exclaim, That fellow was no fool! and lament the hardship of the times. Schiller, the robbers. Turpin's quick eye ranged over the spreading sward in front of the ancient priory, and his brow became contracted. The feeling, however, was transient. The next instant saw him the same easy, reckless being he had been before. There was a little more paleness in his cheek than usual, but his look was keener, and his knees involuntarily clasped the saddle more firmly. No other symptom of anxiety was perceptible. It would be no impeachment to Dick's valour were it necessary to admit that a slight tremor crossed him as he scanned the formidable array of his opponents. The admission is needless. Dick himself would have been the last man to own it. Nor shall we do the memory of our undaunted highwayman any such injustice. Turpin was intrepid to a fault. He was rash, apt to run risks for the mere pleasure of getting out of them. Danger was his delight, and the degree of excitement was always in proportion to the peril incurred. After the first glance he became, to use his own expressive phrase, as cool as a cucumber, and continued, as long as they permitted him, like a skilful commander, calmly to calculate the numerical strength of his adversaries, and to arrange his own plan of resistance. This troop of horsemen, for such it was, might probably amount in the aggregate to twenty men, and presented an appearance like that of a strong muster at a rustic fox-chase, due allowance being made for the various weapons of offence, to wit, naked sabres, firelocks, and a world of huge horse-pistols, which the present field carried along with them. This resemblance was heightened by the presence of an old huntsman and a gamekeeper or two, in scarlet and green jackets, and a few yelping hounds that had followed after them. The majority of the crew consisted of sturdy yeomen, some of which, mounted upon wild unbroken colts, had pretty lives of it to maintain their seats, and converted about in most admired disorder. Others were seated upon more docile, but quite as provoking specimens of the cat-horse breed, whose sluggish sides, reckless alike of hobnailed heel or ash sapling, refused to obey their riders' intimations to move, while others again brought stiff, wrong-headed ponies to the charge, obstinate, impracticable little brutes, who seemed to prefer revolving on their own axis, and describing absurd rotatory motions to proceeding in the direct and proper course pointed out to them. Dick could scarcely forbear laughing at these ridiculous manoeuvres, but his attention was chiefly attracted towards three individuals who were evidently the leaders of this warlike expedition. In the thin, tall figure of the first of these he recognised Ranulph Rookwood. With the features and person of the second of the group 
he was not entirely unacquainted, nor incorrectly fancied, that his military bearing, or, as he would have expressed it, the soldier-like cut of his jib, could belong to no other than Major Mowbray, whom he had once eased of a purse on Finchley Common. In the round, rosy countenance and robustious person of the last of the trio, he discovered his ancient ally, Titus Tyrconnell. "'Ah, Titus, my jewel, are you there?' exclaimed Dick, as he distinguished the Irishman. "'Come, I have one friend among them who I may welcome. So they see me now. Off they come, pell-mell. Back, best, back. Slowly, wench, slowly. There. Stand.' And Bess again remained motionless. The report of Turpin's pistol reached the ears of the troop, and as all were upon the alert, he had scarcely presented himself at the gateway when a loud shout was raised, and the whole cavalcade galloped towards him, creating, as may be imagined, the wildest disorder, each horseman yelling as he neared the arch, and got involved in the press occasioned by the unexpected concentration of forces at that point, while oaths and blows, kicks and cuffs, were reciprocated with such hearty good will that, had Turpin ever read Ariosto or Cervantes, or heard of the discord of King Agramente's camp, this melee must have struck him as its realisation. As it was, entertaining little apprehension of the result, he shouted encouragement to them. Scarcely, however, had the foremost horseman disentangled himself from the crowd, and struggling to the door, was in the act of levelling his pistol at Turpin's head, when a well-directed ball pierced the brain of his charger, and horse and man rolled to the ground. Vowing vengeance, a second succeeded, and was in like manner compelled to bite the dust. "'That will let old Peter know that Ranulph Rookwood is at hand,' exclaimed Dick. "'I shan't throw away another shot.' The scene at the archway was now one of complete confusion. Terrified by the shots, some of the boars would have drawn back, while others, in mid-career, advanced and propelled them forwards. It was like the meeting of two tides. Here and there, regardless of the bit, and scared by the firing, a wild colt broke all bounds, and hurling his rider in the air, darted off into the green, or, in another case, rushed forward, and encountering the prostrate cattle cumbering the entrance to the priory hall, stumbled, and precipitated his master neck over heels at the very feet of his enemy. During all this tumult, a few shots were fired at the highwayman, which, without doing him a jot of mischief, tended materially to increase their own confusion. The voice of Turpin was now heard above the din and turmoil to sound a parley, and as he appeared disposed to offer no opposition, some of his antagonists ventured to raise themselves from the ground and to approach him. "'I demand to be led to Sir Ranulph Rookwood,' said Turpin. "'He is here,' said Ranulph, riding up. "'Villain, you are my prisoner.' "'As you list, Sir Ranulph,' returned Dick coolly, "'but let me have a word in private with you. "'Ere you do aught you may repent hereafter.' "'No words, sir. "'Deliver up your arms, or—' "'My pistols are at your service,' replied Dick. "'I have just discharged them.' "'You may have others. "'We must search you.' "'Hold!' cried Dick. If you will not listen to me, read that paper. And he handed Ranulph his mother's letter to Mr. Coates. It was without the superscription, which he had thrown aside. My mother's hand! exclaimed Ranulph, reddening with anger, as he hastily perused its contents. And she sent this to you? 
"'You lie, villain! "'Tis a forgery!' "'Let this speak for me,' returned Dick, "'holding out the finger upon which Lady Rookwood's ring was placed. "'Know you that cipher?' "'You have stolen it!' retorted Ranulph. "'My mother,' added he, in a deep, stern whisper, "'articulated only for Turpin's hearing, "'would never have entrusted her honour to a highwayman's keeping.' "'She has entrusted more. "'Her life,' replied Dick, in a careless tone. "'She would have bribed me to do murder.' "'Murder?' echoed Ranulph, aghast. "'Aye, to murder your brother,' returned Dick. "'But let that pass. "'You have read that note. "'I have acted solely upon your mother's responsibility. "'Lady Rookwood's honour is pledged for my safety. "'Of course, her son will set me free.' "'Never.' "'Well, as you please.' "'Your mother is in my power. Betray me, and you betray her.' "'No more,' returned Ranulph sternly. "'Go your ways. You are free. "'Pledge me your word of honour. I am safe.' Ranulph had scarcely given his pledge, when Major Mowbray rode furiously up. A deep flush of anger burnt upon his cheeks. His sword was drawn in his hand. He glanced at Turpin, as if he would have felled him from his saddle. "'This is the ruffian!' cried the major fiercely, by whom I was attacked some months ago, and for whose apprehension the reward of three hundred pounds is offered by his majesty's proclamation, with a free pardon to his accomplices. This is Richard Turpin. He has just added another crime to his many offences. He has robbed my mother and sister. The postboy knew him the moment he came up. Where are they, villain? Whither have they gone? Answer! I know not, replied Turpin calmly. "'Did not the lad tell you they were rescued?' "'Rescued? By whom?' asked Ranulph, with great emotion. "'By one who calls himself Sir Luke Rookwood,' answered Turpin, with a meaning smile. "'By him?' ejaculated Ranulph. "'Where are they now?' "'I have already answered that question,' said Dick. "'I repeat, I know not.' "'You are my prisoner!' cried the Major." seizing Turpin's bridle. "'I have Sir Ranulph's word for my safety,' rejoined Turpin. "'Let go my rein.' "'How is this?' asked Major Mowbray, incredulously. "'Ask me not. Release him,' replied Ranulph. "'Ranulph!' said the Major. "'You ask an impossibility. My honour, my duty is implicated in this man's capture.' "'The honour of all of us is involved in his deliverance.' "'returned Ranulph in a whisper. "'Let him go. "'I will explain all hereafter. "'Let us search for them. "'For Eleanor. "'Surely after this you will help us to find them,' "'added he, addressing Turpin. "'I wish with all my soul I could do so,' "'replied the highwayman. "'I see the ladies cross the brook "'and enter these old ruins,' "'interposed the postboy, "'who had now joined the party. "'I see them from where I stood on the hillside.' and as I kept a pretty sharp lookout, and have a tolerably bright eye of my own, I don't think as how they ever comed out again. "'Someone is hidden within yon fissure in the wall,' exclaimed Ranulph. "'I see a figure move.' And he flung himself from his horse, rushing towards the mouth of the cell. Imitating his example, Major Mowbray followed his friend, sword in hand. "'The game begins now in right earnest,' said Dick to himself. "'The old fox will be soon unearthed. I must look to my snappers, and he thrust his hand quietly into his pocket in search of a pistol. 
Just as Ranulph and the Major reached the recess, they were startled by the sudden apparition of the ill-fated attorney. "'Mr. Coates!' exclaimed Ranulph in surprise. "'What do you hear, sir?' "'I—I—that is, Sir Ranulph, uh, you must excuse me, sir. Particular business, can't say,' returned the trembling attorney. For at this instant his eye caught that of Turpin, and the ominous reflection of a polished steel barrel held carelessly towards him. He was aware also that on the other hand he was, in like manner, the mark of Rust and Wilder. Those polite gentlemen having threatened him with a brace of slugs in his brain if he dared to betray their hiding-place. "'It is necessary that I should be guarded in my answers,' murmured he. "'Is there any one within that place besides yourself?' said the Major, making a movement thither. "'No, sir, nobody at all,' answered Coates hastily fancying at the same time that he heard the click of a pistol that was to be his death-warrant. "'How came you here, sir?' demanded Ranulph. "'Do you mean in this identical spot?' replied Coates, evasively. "'You can have no difficulty in answering that question,' said the Major sternly. "'Pardon me, sir. I find considerable difficulty in answering any question situated as I am.' "'Have you seen Mrs. Mowbray?' asked Ranulph eagerly. "'Or my mother,' said the Major, in the same breath. "'Neither,' replied Coates, rather relieved by these questions. "'I suspect you are deceiving us, sir,' said the Major. "'Your manner is confused. "'I am convinced you know more of this matter than you choose to explain, "'and if you do not satisfy me at once, fully and explicitly, I vow to heaven.' and the Major's sword described a glittering circle around his head. "'Are you privy to their concealment?' asked Ranulph. "'Have you seen aught of them, or of Luke Bradley?' "'Speak, or this moment is your last,' said the Major. "'If it is my last, I cannot speak,' returned Coates. "'I can neither make head nor tail of your questions, gentlemen.' "'And you positively assure me you have not seen Mrs. Mowbray and her daughter?' said Ranulph. Turpin here winked at Coates. The attorney understood him. "'I don't positively assert that,' faltered he. "'How? You have seen them?' shouted Ranulph. "'Where are they? In safety? Speak!' added the Major. Another expressive gesture from the highwayman communicated to the attorney the nature of his reply. "'Without, sir, without—' "'Yonder,' he replied. "'I will show you myself. Follow, gentlemen, follow.' And away scampered Coates, without once venturing to look behind him. In an instant the ruined hall was deserted, and Turpin alone left behind. In the excitement of the moment his presence had been forgotten. In an instant afterwards the arena was again occupied by a company equally numerous. Rust and Wilder issued from their hiding-places, followed by a throng of the gypsy crew. "'Where is Sir Luke Rookwood?' asked Turpin. "'He remains below,' was the answer returned. "'And Peter Bradley stays there likewise.' "'No matter. Now make ready, pals. Give him one shout. "'Hurrah!' "'Hurrah!' replied the crowd, at the top of their voices. Ranulph Rookwood and his companions heard this shout. Mr. Coates had already explained the stratagem practised upon them by the wily highwayman, as well as the perilous situation in which he himself had been placed, and they were in the act of returning to make good his capture when the loud shouts of the crew arrested them. 
From the clamour, it was evident that considerable reinforcement must have arrived from some unlooked-for quarter, and although burning to be avenged upon the audacious highwayman, the major felt it would be a task of difficulty, and that extreme caution could alone ensure success. With difficulty restraining the impatience of Ranulph, who could scarcely brook these few minutes of needful delay, Major Mowbray gave particular instructions to each of the men in detail, and caused several of them to dismount. By this arrangement Mr. Coates found himself accommodated with a steed and a pair of pistols, with which latter he vowed to wreak his vengeance upon some of his recent tormentors. After a short space of time occupied in this manner, the troops slowly advanced towards the postern, in much better order than upon the previous occasion, but the stoutest of them quailed as they caught sight of the numerous gypsy gang drawn out in battle array within the abbey walls. Each party scanned the other's movements in silence and wonder, anxiously waiting, yet in a measure dreading, their leader's signal to begin. That signal was not long delayed. A shot from the ranks of Rookwood did instant and bitter execution. Rob Rust was stretched, lifeless upon the ground. Nothing more was needed. The action now became general. Firearms were discharged on both sides, without much damage to either party, but a rush being made by a detachment of horse, headed by Major Mowbray, the conflict soon became more serious. The gypsies, after the first fire, threw aside their pistols and fought with long knives, with which they inflicted desperate gashes both on men and horses. Major Mowbray was slightly wounded in the thigh, and his steed receiving the blow intended for himself, stumbled and threw his rider. Luckily for the Major, Ranulph Rookwood was at hand, and with the butt-end of a heavy-handed pistol felled the ruffian to the earth, just as he was upon the point of repeating the thrust. Turpin, meanwhile, had taken comparatively a small share in the conflict. He seemed to content himself with acting upon the defensive, and except in the case of Titus Tyrconnel, whom, espying amidst the crowd, he had considerably alarmed by sending a bullet through his wig, he did not fire a single shot. He also succeeded in unhorsing Coates by hurling with great dexterity the empty pistol at his head. Though apparently unconcerned in the skirmish, he did not flinch from it, but kept his ground unyieldingly. A charmed life he seemed to bear, for amid the shower of bullets, many of which were especially aimed at himself, he came off unhurt. "'He that's born to be hanged will never be drowned, that's certain,' said Titus. "'It's no use trying to bring him down. "'But by Jesus, he's spoiled the best hat and wig anyhow. "'There's a hole in my beaver as big as a crown-piece. "'Your own crown's safe, and that's some satisfaction,' said Coates, "'whereas mine has a bump on it as large as a swan's egg. "'Ah, if we could only get behind him!' "'The strife continued to rage without intermission, "'and though there were now several ghastly evidences of its fury "'in the shape of wounded men and slaughtered or disabled horses,' whose gaping wounds flooded the turf with gore, it was still difficult to see upon which side victory would eventually declare itself. The gypsies, though by far the greater sufferers of the two, firmly maintained their ground. Drenched in the blood of the horses they had wounded, and brandishing their long knives, they presented a formidable and terrific appearance, the effect of which was not at all diminished by their wild yells and savage gesticulations. On the other hand, headed by Major Mowbray and Ranulph, the troop of yeomen pressed on undauntedly, and where the sturdy farmers could get a firm grip of their lithe antagonists, or deliver a blow with their ox-like fists, 
they seldom failed to make good the advantages which superior weight and strength gave them. It will thus be seen that as yet they were pretty well matched. Numbers were in favour of the gypsies, but courage was equally distributed, and perhaps what is emphatically called bottom was in favour of the rustics. Be this as it may, from what had already occurred, there was every prospect of a very serious termination to the fray. From time to time, Turpin glanced to the entrance of the cell, in the expectation of seeing Sir Luke Rookwood make his appearance, and as he was constantly disappointed in his expectation, he could not conceal his chagrin. At length he resolved to dispatch a messenger to him, and one of the crew accordingly departed upon this errand. He returned presently with a look of blank dismay. In our hasty narrative of the fight, we have not paused to particularise, neither have we enumerated the list of combatants. Amongst them, however, were Jerry Juniper, the Knight of Malta, and Zoroaster. Excalibur, as may be conceived, had not been idle, but that trenchant blade had been shivered by Ranulph Rookwood in the early stage of the business, and the knight left weaponless. Zoroaster, who was not merely a worshipper of fire, but a thorough milling cove, had engaged to some purpose in a pugilistic encounter with the rustics, and having fought several rounds now bore his blushing honours thick upon him. Jerry, like Turpin, had remained tolerably quiescent. The proper moments, he said, had not arrived. A fatality seemed to attend Turpin's immediate companions. Rust was the first who fell. Wilder also was now among the slain. Things were precisely in this condition when the messenger returned. A marked change was instantly perceptible in Turpin's manner. He no longer looked on with indifference. He seemed angry and distrustful. He gnawed his lip, ever a sign with him of vexation. Addressing a few words to those about him, he then spoke more loudly to the rest of the crew. Being in the jargon of the tawny tribe, his words were not intelligible to the opposite party, but their import was soon made known by the almost instant and total relinquishment of the field by the gypsies. They took to their heels at once, to a man, leaving only a few desperately wounded men behind them, and flying along the intricate ruins of the priory, baffled all pursuit, wherever it was attempted. Jerry Juniper was the last in the retreat, but upon receiving a hint from Dick, he vaulted like a row over the heads of his adversaries and made good his escape. Turpin alone remained. He stood like a lion at bay, quietly regarding the huntsman hurtling around him. Ranulph Rookwood rode up and bade him surrender. "'Detain me not!' cried he, in a voice of thunder. "'If you would save her who is dear to you, descend into that vault. Off, I say!' and Turpin shook away with ease the grasp that Ranulph had laid upon him. "'Villain! You do not escape me this time!' said Major Mowbray, interposing himself between Turpin and the outlet. "'Major Mowbray, I would not have your blood upon my head,' said Dick. "'Let me pass!' and he levelled a pistol. "'Fire if you dare!' said the Major, raising his sword. "'You pass not! I will rather die than allow you to escape. Barricade the door!' "'Strike him down if he attempts to pass. "'Richard Turpin, I arrest you in the King's name. "'You hear, my lads, in His Majesty's name. "'I command you to assist me in this highwayman's capture. Two hundred pounds for his head.' Two hundred devils!' exclaimed Dick, with a laugh of disdain. "'Go, seek your mother and sister within yon vault, Major Mowbray. "'You will find employment enough there.' "'Saying which,' 
he suddenly forced Bess to back a few yards. Then, striking his heels sharply into her sides, ere his purpose could be divined by the spectators, charged, and cleared the lower part of the mouldering priory walls. This feat was apparently accomplished with no great effort by his admirable and unequalled mare. "'By the powers!' cried Titus. "'And he's given us the slip after all, and just when we thought to make sure of him too. Why, Mr. Coates, that wall must be higher than a five-barred gate or any stone wall in my country. It's just the most extraordinary lep I ever set eyes on.' "'The devil's in the fellow, certainly, or in his mare,' returned Coates. "'But if he escapes me—' I'll forgive him. I know whither where he's bound. He's off to London with my bill of exchange. I'll be up with him. I'll track him like a bloodhound, slowly and surely, as my father, the thief-taker, used to follow up a scent. Recollect the hare and the tortoise. The race is not always to the swift. What say you? Tis a match for five hundred pounds. Nay, for five thousand. For there is a certain marriage certificate in the way. A glorious golden venture. You shall go halves if we win. We'll have him dead or alive. "'What say you for London, Mr. Teconnell? Shall we start at once?' "'With all my soul,' replied Titus. "'I'm with you!' And away this par nobile scoured. Ranulph, meantime, plunged into the vault. The floor was slippery, and he had nigh stumbled. Loud and deep lamentations and the wailing sound, like that of a lament for the dead, resounded in his ears. A light at the further extremity of the vault attracted his attention. He was filled with terrible forebodings, but the worst reality was not so terrible as suspense. He rushed towards the light. He passed the massive pillars, and there, by the ruddy torch flame, discovered two female figures. One was an old woman, fantastically attired, wringing her hands and moaning, or gibbering wild strains in broken, discordant, yet pathetic tones. The other was Mrs. Mowbray. Both were images of despair. Before them lay some motionless object. He noticed not that old woman. He scarcely saw Mrs. Mowbray. He beheld only that object of horror. It was the lifeless body of a female. The light fell imperfectly upon the face. He could not discern the features, but the veil in which it was swathed, that veil, was Eleanor's. He asked no more. With a wild cry he rushed forward. "'Eleanor! My beloved!' shrieked he. Mrs. Mowbray started at his voice, but appeared stunned and helpless. "'She is dead!' said Ranulph, stooping towards the body. "'Dead! Dead!' "'Aye!' echoed the old woman, in accents of equal anguish. "'Dead! Dead!' "'But this is not Eleanor!' exclaimed he, as he viewed the features more closely. "'This face, though beautiful, is not hers. This dishevelled hair is black.' The long lashes that shade her cheek are of the same hue. She's scarce dead. The hand I clasp is yet warm. The fingers are pliant. Yet she is dead, said the old woman in a broken voice. She is slain. Who hath slain her? asked Ranulph. I. I. Her mother slew her. You? exclaimed Ranulph, horror-stricken. "'And where is Eleanor?' asked he. "'Was she not here?' "'Better she were here now, even though she was that poor maid,' groaned Mrs. Mowbray. "'Then where she is?' "'Where is she, then?' asked Ranulph, with frantic eagerness. "'Fled, whither I know not.' "'With whom?' "'With Sir Luke Rookwood, with Alan Rookwood. 
They have borne her hence. Ranulph, you are too late. Gone! cried Ranulph fiercely, springing to his feet. How escaped they? There appears to be but one entrance to this vault. I will search each nook and cranny. Tis vain, replied Mrs. Mowbray. There is another outlet through yon cell. By that passage they escaped. Too true, too true, shouted Ranulph, who flew to examine the cell. And wherefore followed you not? The stone rolled to its mouth and resisted my efforts. I could not follow. Torture and death! She is lost to me forever, cried Ranulph bitterly. No, exclaimed Barbara, clutching his arm. Place your trust in me, and I will find her for you. You? ejaculated Ranulph. Even I, replied Barbara. Your wrongs shall be righted. My Sibyl be avenged. End of chapter 14, book 3